This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, I'm together with uh, Dr. Octavien Gabor, who's a professor of philosophy at uh, Methodist College in um, Peoria, Illinois. Um, he holds a PhD in philosophy from Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. Uh, and uh, he hails from the same part of the world as myself. That's what... Uh, brought us together and this is uh, what underlies our friendship but both also our love for philosophy and learning and um, his passion is stronger than mine because he has been translating some of these uh, writings uh, of philosophy and of religion and one of the most interesting books that he translated um, recently is called Pray for Brother Alexander by uh, Konstantin Noika, who's uh, one of the most well-known Romanian philosophers. Uh, and Dr. Gabor will, will tell us more about um, Noika, Konstantin Noika, and uh, will give us a little bit of, uh, of background uh, about him. And then we'll also talk about... Uh, the book itself. So, uh, please, Professor. Hi, uh, thank you, first of all. Thank you for having me. And especially thank you for giving me the chance to talk about this uh, wonderful philosopher who is Konstantin Noika, who, to my mind at least, is one of the um, main Romanian philosophers of the 20th century, um, who wrote primarily after World War II, and but also before and at the same time what, what what's special about him is that he was not just a philosopher but he also was someone who contributed to romanian culture and who contributed to romanian culture by uh, allowing other people to grow around him during a period of time when uh, what we call culture was absent so I think he actually provided an oasis in a desert of uh, intellectual life, as Romania was between 1945 and 1989, which is the period when Romania was under the communist regime. Uh, before we continue, let me ask you, though, why your interest in translating his works? Uh, this is the second book this is the first book you translated by uh, him the second book is the romanian sentiment of being 
which you translated uh, this year or last year, right? Um, it came up. It came out this year. Yes, this year. And the question is, why do you think his works might be relevant outside of the Romanian context, right? Because you you said he's a Romanian philosopher, right? And uh, is the emphasis on Romanian or on philosopher? <laughs> That's a very interesting question. So um, it's true. I translated two books from Noika. One of them was the one that we're discussing today, uh, Pray for Brother Alexander. The other one, uh, The Romanian Sentiment of Being. It's a, a work that I've done together with my wife, uh, Elena Gabor. So we translated it together. Uh, but I think I can answer it in two different ways. First of all, why translating Romanian works? And for me, I, I never consider myself a translator. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, I, I was trained as a Greek philosopher, so to say, someone who works on Aristotle. But then um, maybe 15 years ago or so, uh, my mom <laughs> asked me to, to translate a book, Father Arsenio Boca's Living Words. And I said, Mom, forget about it. I cannot do something like that, you know. But then uh, it became a work of love, actually. And I translated it together with the priest from uh, my parish at that time, Father Gregory Allard uh, in Lafayette, Indiana, where I was doing my PhD. And so that was my the first book I translated from Romanian to English, even though, again, I never considered myself to be a translator. Uh, but then slowly I... Uh, it was like a drug, so to say. I kind of started enjoying it. Uh, I'm enjoying it primarily because uh, it connected me with something that I left behind. So it was connecting me with myself in some sense. But at the same time, because I felt that there was certain uh, lack of Romanian writing within the English-speaking world. That doesn't mean that there are no other translations. There are plenty of other translations now. There, there are plenty of translators, actually, nowadays who translate from Romanian to, Eng uh, to English, especially literature, actually. Now, why, why Noica? Uh, those two books that I translated, or the last one, again, together with my wife, are not the first books translated in English that Noica wrote. Uh, two other books actually came out I think 10 years ago or around 10 years ago. Uh, I don't remember exactly the year, but both of them were translated by Alisterian Blit, uh, Becoming Within Being, one of them, and the other one is uh, Six Melodies of the Contemporary Spirit. For me, Noika was um, to some extent guilty of... Um, starting philosophy. That is, my my first uh, encounter with philosophy was through Noika, and even more than that, less than Noika. It was through one of his disciples. It was through Gabriel Lichanus, The Poltinish Diary, which um, is a book that recounts uh, Noika's uh, encounters with his, with his disciples, so to say, and which also talks about the possibility of, of living a free life within uh, a country where there is no freedom, uh, like a communist country, so a, a totalitarian country. And, and, and in some sense, I always felt obligated to Noika or um, like I owe him something. I owe him the path in my life. Do not understand me wrongly, you know, 
obviously Noika. Uh, I did not meet Noika, <laughs> other than through his books and through his disciple. But then at the same time, it's also Although because you, he... you don't come from far away from where he re retired. You might have met him if you... Uh, that, that's correct. I don't come from far away from where he retired. And I visited the place where he lived mm -hmm. in Poltinish, but I visited the place where he lived after he died. Mm -hmm. And I actually talked to the person who who took care of his cabin uh, during his life. And the lady? He, uh, no, the, 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 not the lady, the, the, the gentleman who took care of the cabin, mm -hmm. actually. And, and he was, um, I think I've never encountered a man talking with such piety about another man. He piety? Was so, piety, yes. He was talking about him with a, with a, with a kind of respect that borders piety, if I can put it this way. Yes, yes. Sorry, did you? No, did go you... ahead, go ahead. No, I had this somewhat same same impression because I used to go skiing there uh, in Paltinish and I also surreptitiously encountered uh, the lady who was f f friends with Noika and I, I referred to the philosopher, I said Noika and and she retorted, she said, you mean Mr. Noika, right? <laughs> Very, uh, but also a, a deep reverence, as you say, the say, uh, no, yeah. no, please. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was, in some sense, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm attached to Noika as long as I'm concerned, you know, not, not that Noika is attached to me, but I'm attached to Noika through, through my biography, so to say, or through my philosophical biography. And then uh, Noika's writing, um, they sound very authentic to me. Um, often philosophy has become... Uh, what Romanians say, uh, a massage to a wooden leg. That is, we just talk about arguments for the sake of arguments. But when you read Noika's philosophy, you feel as if uh, you go back to how philosophy used to be in, uh, in the Greek times, which I love. That is, trying to figure out how to improve one's life and trying to figure out how understanding wisdom or, try, uh, or approaching uh, uh, knowledge improves your life. It's not only about uh, becoming wiser or it's not only about uh, winning arguments against other people or showing uh, your intelligence but rather uh, an authentic attempt to become human so and i think this is needed nowadays actually in philosophy in general so uh, to some extent i hope that noika noika's books help in that direction Mm -hmm. And also for us, uh, for me personally, too, his example of being uh, cultivating this master-disciple, the mentoring aspect of philosophy uh, was exemplary. Uh, I always compared him to Heidegger, and uh, it seems to me, because like Heidegger, he retires to this hut probably in much more modest and poor conditions. But I think the big difference is the deep humaneness of Noika, that he, he cultivates a real relationship with these young people uh, whom he grooms and, and encourages and trains uh, like a real personal trainer. And maybe I'm ignorant, but I never saw that in Heidegger. Uh, it seemed it's a much more 
difficult relationships with his disciples. As an aside, but let's go back to, to yeah. Noika. Actually, if you don't mind uh, talking about the master-disciple relationship, um, I never thought about, from that perspective at least, the connection between him and Heidegger. But I also I always see him rather as a Socratic character, and uh, the idea of of the of the school or or the idea of education did not come to him when he was uh, 60, 70, or 80. The idea of education came to him from the beginning of his writings. Uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, in in his first book, or well, I, I don't want to give uh, wrong information here, but he says something like that. The idea of a school where nothing is taught obsesses me. States of spirit that must be given to students. No content, no advices, no teachings. So he talks about this uh, relationship between master and disciple in the context of freedom. Not because you have nothing to teach someone else, but what you actually have to teach is for that person to find himself. To find himself because within oneself you already have truth. Not to find yourself in a in a in a relative sense, but rather to find yourself because truth is already in, uh, embodied within you. And do you think is, this is one of the reasons he decided to remain back, to stay in Romania and not choose the exile like so many of his generation, uh, right? And especially Joran and Merceliade and UNESCO. And Noika re- remained there, uh, although his first wife and uh, the children left for England. Right. Um, do you think that's related to his view of uh, what it means to do philosophy and the different kind of freedom than physical freedom, so to speak? Perhaps. Not, not that you say it. Uh, I think you're right. Or your suggestion seems appealing to me. That is, that uh, this... Uh, this freedom of spirit that one can have, regardless of whatever one is encountered, is surrounded by, uh, was one of the reasons that made him remain in Romania. There may also be the connection he had uh, with his own language and with his own culture. And I think that's especially seen in uh, the Romanian sentiment of being, the second book that I translated with, uh, with Elena. Um, how he understands that I would say at least that being is always embodied within a culture that even if uh, the world of the spirit is is in some sense you know that which gives you freedom but is also manifested within a body and culture and language is a body through which the spirit can be manifested and I also think that in this Noika was in love with beauty, uh, with beauty in the sense that um, beauty is not abstract. Beauty has a body, and uh, beauty has different ways of manifesting itself. And it can be manifest in the body of the Romanian language. It can be manifest in the body of the French language. It can be manifest in the body of the English, American culture, and so on. And and that really attracted him, I think. 
But as you say that, it strikes me that there is a certain disembodiedness in a way to his, uh, to, to the book we're talking about, right? He is in prison. This imparted this detachment, right? One one way in which he seems to cope, one of the ways in which he copes with this predicament he finds himself in is a certain sense of uh, elusiveness, a certain sense of, well, I'm here, but I'm not here. I allow myself to escape it through mm-hmm. ideas, through dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you find that? Yes and a... no. Go ahead, please. And, and I will try to explain why yes and no. So uh, I would say why yes. So yes, uh, in, in the book, uh, he seems to almost be unattached to everything that happens to him. He seems to say that everything has no importance, that the interrogations that often were uh terrible for those people who were going to interrogations. The, the violence and uh, the lack of rationality is of no importance. So why? Because perhaps you live in the world of the spirit and being in the world of the spirit, you separate this reality from the genuine reality and so on. So from that perspective, it seems that that's what he says. Uh, at the same time, I think it's a bit more than that. Because what he seems to say it's not important is all this, let's call it reality around him, that actually is not reality at all, because it has no meaning and it has no understanding whatsoever. So to attach myself to that which has no meaning already means losing myself. And I think that his separation from the reality of suffering, from the reality of prison, from the reality of... Uh, the absurd, right? You use of, that... Yeah, from the reality of the absurd is actually an attempt to remain alive. To remain alive in the life of the spirit doesn't mean to separate yourself from, from, from culture, doesn't mean to separate yourself from this life, but it means to separate yourself from that which has no meaning or to, know, to not contribute, uh, to not become yourself meaningless by buying into that reality. It all, at the same time, so th- this also implies, I think, that you should not fight it. Uh, because if you fight meaninglessness, you can only fight meaninglessness actively so, from within meaninglessness. You cannot fight, uh, or let me let me put it in spiritual terms. If you fight with the devil, you always lose. <laughs> it's not, uh, you won't, you, you're never able to, to win arguments against the one that has no, no rationality. Or if I were to put it in platonic terms, if you go to fight against the sophist, you will always lose yourself in the forest that the sophist builds around him, and you go into the into the realm of non-being. So you yourself become non-being. What I what Noika does when he remains in the world in the world of the spirit, uh, he does not separate himself from this life. And I think one of the one of the uh, arguments for that, or one of the evidence, so to say, about this, that he doesn't separate himself from this life, is that even if he lived during communism, and even if he lived during a period of time when the world did not make sense in that 
context, when there was when the absurd was the rule, he continued to try to work for Romanian culture, which is embodied. Uh, it's not only the world of the spirit, it is the production of, of things, of works of art. It's production of uh, works that are um, expressed in a language. And that, in some sense, is a body. It's not just spirit. Mm-hmm. And he has been accused of, quote-unquote, certain, you know, a certain kind of sub- being subdued or not being, not protesting enough or even collaborationism or a certain passivity Uh, but in a way it's hard to make all kinds of accusations in retrospect or from afar when you are not in the situation of the absurd which is a situation unlike any other situation yeah correct and his mechanism of survival or coping uh, in a way is rather interesting, right? And 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 a kind of combination of deflection mm-hmm. and uh, not active, not passive. And it maybe bears some lessons for us today too. In if we, when we find ourselves in situations that are very hard to fight, mm-hmm. fight yeah. okay. or fight them frontally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So first. Let me let me give some example of the absurdity of the regime, so to say, uh, so people who are not familiar with this could understand. Uh, Noika spent six years in prison, and six prior years. to that, six years, yes, and prior to that, he was uh, arrested uh, at I, how, how do you say that arrested at his home, or he was not able to leave his home. A domicile, right, or house arrest? House arrest, there you go, house arrest, yes. Thank you very much. And at his trial, when he was placed in reason, one of the uh, accusations was that he was sharing hostile manuscripts, and that is Goethe and Hegel. So just just so people can see the absurdity of the regime. And you're right, uh, he was accused by some... um, you know, after communism fell in Romania, of a certain collaboration with the regime or a certain um, lack of fighting. Um, after he came out of prison, you could not describe him as a dissident, as many people in Romania were. So many people who um, tried to send letters to Radio Free Europe or Voice of America to talk about the uh, uh, absurdity of the regime and uh, the atrocities, actually, that the regime actually... Uh, brought against the Romanians. He didn't do anything like that, uh, or as far as I know. And at the same time, in the archive of the the secret police, you see a man who is, um, who cannot describe, who cannot be described as a hero. So he does not take uh, the sword of justice and uh, shows to all those people who are uh, uh, overcome uh, by lack of uh, rationality, who are, who are overcome by the absurd, who doesn't he doesn't show them uh, genuine reality. Now, um, I'm not. I would not suggest that being a hero, in the sense of being a dissident, is something that one should not do. Uh, I would. I would suggest though that Noika 
had a different understanding of what victim actually meant. Um, and I don't think he, he uh, was living in his mind in what perhaps our society lives in, uh, that is, a notion of victimhood, that we are all victims somehow. Uh, for him, the one who is genuinely a victim, the one that you need to pray for, is the abuser. <laughs> Uh, because the abuser is the one who has lost authenticity. Uh, and I think that's where the title of the book comes in, Pray for Brother Alexander. And uh, in, in the Pray for Brother Alexander, the book actually begins with a story of uh, a, a Soviet general who occupies... Uh, do you want me to read it? Or Yeah, maybe, yeah, let's read that, because I think it's very beautiful, and it, it oh. provides the context and good thank you correct yeah so those are the first words actually the first uh, sentences in the book so toward the end of world war ii a nunnery from moldova was occupied by the conquering soviet troops the nuns left and looked for refuge in other places when they returned they found a note on the altar the commander of the troops that occupied the monastery declares that he left it untouched and asks you to pray for his soul Beginning with that moment, the name of Alexander is mentioned at every religious service. And then I can say, pray for Brother Alexander. You too, reader, pray, because this name does not concern only the commander of the victorious troops. So uh, I think Alexander is the victor, <laughs> the, the victor of this world who um, who is trying to... Uh, win according worldly principles, but is a victor in a world in which we have victors and losers, if I can put it this way. Uh, for Noika, things are different. What we can do is to be born somehow into the world of the spirit. And if you are a victor of this world through violence, you are actually someone who has already lost. If you are a victor uh, in this world by abusing others because you have you fell in love with principles or with ideas, so you lost uh, the personhood of other human beings, you are the one that you need prayer. It's not the one that you abuses that you abuse. Forgive me, that needs prayer, but it's actually you, the one who who abused others. And he he, I, I think that's very helpful. Uh, to to understand uh, and the perspective of the book, right? Because this is a a book, you know, a, a prima facie. It's a book about a journal about being imprisoned, right? Correct. Yeah. But I think it's much more subtle than that. He's trying to make a, a point which is not always visible. Although he starts with this amazing story. And the point is, how do you live? What is worth fighting for, right? And and the book, in many ways, or living for, or how do you perceive reality? What is your view of life, or how do you find yourself in life? And as I read it, I made I compared it to Franco's book, in, to a, you know, *Man's Search for Meaning*. Yeah, interesting. As a, a kind of radical 
investigation in what keeps you going as a human being, right? Because mm-hmm. they're both in a radical situation of the absurd, of rock bottom, of nothingness, so to speak. So what do you do when you're there? Uh, yeah, right. So what do you think is his... and Why do you think this is so important for him to pray for the abuser? It's it's the please. Yeah, the, the, uh, this is a very difficult question uh, in general. Actually, what do you do when nothing around you makes sense? It's I don't think it's a question only for Noika. It's a question for all of us. Uh, if we ever find ourselves in a situation which nothing makes sense, and um, I will I will say something about Noika. But I will say something in in general. I would say uh, so. Part of reading, part of translating, actually, pray for Brother Alexander, was my increasing interest into testimonies of people who had suffered during communist during the communist prison. So in prisons or in the gulag or in concentration camps and so on, and. Um, you know, uh, for a long period of time, for me, philosophy was uh, something safe. Uh, what I mean by that is that you read Plato and Aristotle and you enjoy having a coffee and talking to other people about those wonderful arguments and trying to figure out what they say and maybe analyze certain words in Greek and so on. So, you know, nothing harms your soul, nothing harms your being, nothing really, or, well, it depends on how far you go, but nothing really uh is truly asking you this question, what do you do when nothing around you makes sense? And then you read testimonies of people who uh, went through situations in life that I think we cannot comprehend, uh, like the concentration camps or the Holocaust or uh, the communist prisons and so on, you know? And what I found in, the, in many testimonies of people who spent time in communist prisons, and I would mention, for example, Father George Calcio, is that uh, when nothing makes sense, uh, the most, I want to say dangerous, but I'm afraid to say dangerous, the most problematic thing to do is to attempt to make sense out of it, (laughs) to, to force sense upon it. But when nothing makes sense, a reality of nothing makes sense. Part of the reality of nothing makes sense is the emptiness of other human beings, or the suffering of other human beings. Uh, you, when when the world makes no sense, you're not the only one who suffers. When the world doesn't make sense, the one who suffers is your brother, your sister, and so on. And the only response to to the emptiness that the lack of sense brings is your attempt to fill the emptiness of the others with your presence. And the moment in which you attempt to feel the emptiness of others with your presence, what you recover is primarily your humanity. And you're also a, uh, a kindle of hope for the one who has been emptied and uh, who may be able to, to move on or to regain sense because you have uh, given him or her some sort, of, uh, some sort of thing to which they can cling on to. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but uh, in the face of the despair is throwing, uh, in the face of the despair, the, 
often that's what I saw in the tes- testimonies of the people who went through through, through prison. Uh, you are saved by giving yourself to another, or by giving yourself to God and to Christ and find meaning in uh, in in that aspect of your life. Uh, you want to say something? Forgive me. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yes, but you see, as you speak, I don't really find that in this book. <laughs> it, it, uh, we talked before how it's rather cerebral. It's rather... It's almost like prison is for him a, a retreat, which he, it's bad, it has, it's absurd, you have torture, but it's, it's, you, you don't get the traumatic side. It, it, it seems for him it's a, it's a moment where he, it's a moment that he almost, that he appreciates, in fact, because it allows him to, put his ideas to the test on the right and he I think there is a passage that um, maybe I'd like to read where he thinks about um, uh, the where is it um, page 105 uh, thinks about the status and and role of philosophy for him going over my life I realized then how vain European philosophy is the only way I studied and in the spirit of which I was writing. It does not teach you anything, even if I still think that without it, you cannot think anything in an articulated fashion. In all cultures of the world, anything that would belong to the rational. Goethe's saying makes sense for anyone. I cannot do without philosophy, and I have nothing to do with it. Unfortunately for him, he became attached to philosophy after the death of his friend Schiller, and he was going to pay for this. European philosophy does not even teach you to meditate because it does not offer you any spiritual technique. So this is to me like a moment of crisis for him where he either he, he, he realizes that philosophy maybe is not enough, or maybe philosophy as he understood it until then, was insufficient for addressing that moment. But on the one hand, and back to my initial point, so there is a lack of the tragic. I mean, now that I'm like, there, there's no tragic there. It's it's almost too rational, right? Anyway, I'm just putting some of this on the table. Please pick a thread that you would like to address. No, that, that's perfectly fine, actually. And uh, you are correct. I mean, everything that I said prior to your question is not perceived in Noika. That's why I wanted to say that there are so many so many testimonies who talk about uh, what you're doing in, in the situation of what's absurd is the connection between people. That's the only thing that saves you, is the embrace. I think you also find it in Noika uh, towards the end of the book. But prior to that, uh, let me say something about uh, about what you just said uh, about um, the rationality that he, he seems to have in prison, as if there is no tragic whatsoever. There is no 
no, nothing matters. I think he says at one point, uh, it, it does not matter. After he comes from a session of torture or for a session of beating, he says it doesn't matter. And uh, there is no explanation whatsoever uh, about why he was beaten. And uh, even the explanation makes no sense because it is in the realm of the absurd. So, on the one hand, I think this is explained by what we discussed before, that is the separation between him, or uh, sorry, between the absurd that is around him and his being. If, If I experience something, if I experience the, the tragedy of my life in a tragic way, I think that for Noika, that would mean participation into the absurd uh, in the wrong way, if I can put it this way. Now, doesn't mean that you should not suffer, doesn't mean that you should be completely absent of suffering. I don't think that's what he does. But perhaps what he's trying to do is always to transcend whatever experiences he has and to make sense of them in, in, in the light of, of, his own, uh, of his own life. I think he also says in the book something about the difference between exactness and truth. And maybe what you read about philosophy has to do with that. It is that philosophy understood as in the spirit of exactness, in the spirit of logic, in the spirit of rationality, in the spirit of cold rationality, does not teach you anything other than uh, being able to win arguments. But there are certain moments, moments of the absurd, when it's not philosophy that helps you, but um, going someplace beyond all that, that is finding the truth within yourself. In some sense, to me, it sounds like Kierkegaard. Uh, (laughs) As you were speaking, I was pondering whether he's, you can call him an existentialist, and I would not, I would, would you do you think you could call him an existentialist in his own no, way? Not in the usual definition, not in the usual meaning of the world. No, of the word. No, I wouldn't say that. Now, uh, is he a phenomenologist? <laughs> Sometimes it feels like it. Is he on the border? Uh, not really a phenomenologist, but not really. I mean, if I were to classify him, he's a historian of philosophy, <laughs> but at the same time, also a metaphysician. Uh, especially if you think about uh, becoming within being or uh, or the Romanian uh, sentiment of being and so on. There you see the metaphysician in Noika. Um, but always, nevertheless, I mean, if you read his philosophy, uh, I think the, the spirit that comes out of it is not the spirit of cold rationality. It's really a, a spirit of authenticity, of of someone who is attempting, it's not actually not someone who's attempting, someone who's living his life. Uh, someone who, maybe it's too much to say that, but in Noika's books, regardless of the ideas that you read, what you read is Noika. Is you you read Noika's being. He he puts his being into his words. That's what often. Uh, seems to me, at least. Yeah, and and I think it's someone who, for whom philosophy is a true vocation, a true, uh, an embrace of the philosophical life, uh, for which he sacrifices everything, 
uh, including, I think, to a certain degree, his family, uh, any type of comfort, right? In a way, he's a philosophical, uh, practices philosophical as cases, right? He's uh, a monk for philosophy, so to speak. Um, yeah. I do not know if he perceives that as sacrifice. If I remember correctly, I think in the Li Janus uh, diary from Poltinich, I think uh, there is a quote saying that, uh, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, um, I, I, am, I am grateful that I failed in all things in life so I can succeed in the only thing that matters, philosophy. I don't know if I, if I cite correctly, but I think something like that. So he's not, he didn't sacrifice the other things, but rather he, he failed at them because he was so, because actually his life is so much philosophy, I would say. Uh, it was a natural failure <laughs> so that he can succeed in uh, what he actually was. Good. Related to, to this point, there is a passage that uh, I uh, wrote down as I read uh, the book. Uh, it's on page 58, uh, and then I'm quoting it. But there is something more interesting that takes place with the human person in the world. According to what even we in our prisons find out, the first wave of humanity is confronted with well-being on a large scale without historical precedent in the developed countries of Europe and America. There have been some encounters with material well-being in history for some groups, castes, or clans, but well-being maintained something perverted and perverting, especially since it was not about goods of civilization, radio, museums, etc., but rather about delectation and gorging. Now, for the first time, well-being has become something common and educational, at least in one part of the world and for one historical moment. It may be a form of health for humans. What will it produce? In any case, it could be a deciding example for the European man who has believed so earnestly in materialistic values. Um, I'm not sure what all of this means. That's why I'm <laughs> bringing it, putting it on the table for for you to unpack it a little bit. But it, it, I think it's a very rich passage and it seems to me rather prescient is really anticipating some of the issues we deal with today and he's doing it from the prison right from from mm -hmm. from that from instance. lack of well-being <laughs> right mm -hmm. yes yeah it is indeed a very interesting passage and it, i mean in what follows he actually talks a little bit about communism and capitalism and uh, uh i think it's a little bit of a of a pun as well uh, so remember this book was written during communism noika noika died before communism the regime was overturned so um, even if it is a criticism to communism we have to remember that it was written during the communist period and sometimes there are certain things that seem to be uh, a pun so for example he says in the passage immediately following something along these lines that it's not important that capitalism arrived to well-being before communism did. You know, so it, it would be, so to say, uh, uh, making fun of communism indirectly. But at the same time, I think Noika points out uh, a, a possible uh, 
a possible, let's say, uh, critique to what a capitalist society can bring about, uh, but not a critique in the sense in which societies should not be occupied with well-being, but a critique in the sense that we have to always be vigilant to what happens to us in different contexts. And uh, on the one hand, I think it is wonderful to see in someone who suffers because of a regime uh, that he is also able to see the possible dangers in the regime that may be the salvation <laughs> of, of his life. And, uh, and that is, I think, important for all of us anytime because we often... Uh, um, become partisans and being partisans we become blind to the dangers of our own of our own position and we become so much in love with our own position that uh, we dismiss any dangers that it can bring and Noika here shows that he has uh, an open mind or an, a mind that uh, can judge all things uh, properly. On the other hand, um, it talks, I think, about, uh, about a genuine danger. Um, I, we discussed today, we, we often talked about the absurd and the lack of meaning or the absurd in connection with the lack of meaning. But in, in a communist society, the lack of meaning... Uh, is present because it is imposed from above. That is, um, everything that is official um, is completely absurd. Absurd. A, a rational mind would not would not accept. There is actually a lot to, a lot about laughter in the book as well. Uh, there is one scene in which one of the people who are in prison who is in prison uh, talks about how he got there, and he got there because he started to laugh all those meetings with the party members that they had in the morning because uh, he wanted to show that he was laughing at their jokes, but then the party people realized that he was making fun of them, so he was placed in prison and so on. So there's a lot about laughter as well. Or his moment when he bursts into laughter as they are being uh, 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 petted and, and checked and he mentions our right? Almost, <laughs> yes. like he almost provokes it. Uh-huh. And the conflict actually comes because he he makes a distinction between smile and laughter. Uh, you know, so uh, he's uh, he's seen by the by the guard as being someone who is too smart and acts uh, acts in a certain way. So. Uh, so, as we were talking about this, so the well-being or the lack of meaning, forgive me, the lack of meaning in, in a communist society comes from above. But there is also often, often we talk nowadays actually about the lack of meaning and about many people no longer uh, understanding what their meaning in life is. And uh, we talk about, for example, uh, we talk about the fact that in schools uh, there are less and less uh, men who uh, no longer come to school, don't see a meaning in it, and so on, you know, and uh, don't don't perform as well as they were performing before, and so on. And when uh, when there is no truth, uh, and our world is the world of relativity, or in the sense in which uh, 
uh, we are afraid to say that something is truthful or not truthful, of course, the meaning disappears as well. So there is also a possible danger in a world in which there is well-being, and clearly Noika talks about our world. I mean, uh, I am pretty sure that someone who was a professor 200 years ago did not have the quality of life that you have or the quality of life that I have. Uh, and I am pretty sure that the, the percentage of people who lived under poverty was much higher maybe than uh, it is nowadays, or poverty has changed and so on. I'm not... Um, when I say that, I am actually emphasizing how the the increase in well-being that our society uh, has had. Is there a danger? Well, there is a danger, of course. And the danger is that uh, we take it for granted and that we think we deserve it. And that it doesn't come with uh, with work. It doesn't come with a sacrifice. And um, sacrifice no longer has meaning. And from, from a perspective like Noikas, who I think always understands revival in connection with suffering, uh, who talks about um, what to me seems a, a perspective very close to to a faithful perspective, let's say, you know, there is no resurrection without uh, the Friday of the cross and so on. Um, he reveals this possible danger that we can have in a society of well-being. However, I, I want to make sure that I'm clear in this. I don't think and I'm not suggesting that Noika speaks against well-being. He just says, let's be careful about what happens to us when this happens. This is a test for our society. What are we going to do? What, what is a human being after this? You know, maybe it's a question that uh, C.S. Lewis has in Abolition of Man. I don't know. What, what happens to us in such situations? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a warning against uh, equating well-being with material well-being, right? The conclusion of that passage is today something takes place beyond them. It is the beyond capitalism and communism. For him, the question is not a political question. Correct. I think he's brilliant in that. Uh, and you spoke about this non-partisanship there because he, he really wants to draw attention that the problem is way deeper than a political Problem. Yes, we yeah. we didn't know, right? When when in 1990, when the fall 89, when the fall happened, uh, I remember the first question I asked, uh, but will we have Pepsi Cola? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I wanted Pepsi Cola. I thought if I had Pepsi Cola, I was you were happy, very happy, <laughs> and uh, then I. Uh, <laughs> And so, then you had it, and then <laughs> right. But it, it, it is this. Uh, uh, this is why we thought because we were in a way biased. Somehow we thought, well, once we have capitalism and free market, everything will be good and nice. And <laughs> no, it's not necessarily the case. It's not going to be the case that no. the, the fundamental question will remain, and uh, 
And just to quote here, today something takes place beyond them. It is the exam that the materialist ideal of the European man must take and and together with this ideal, man himself. The mat- so it is an, in a way an exam that continues, right? How do you? It's the exam of meaning of living a life beyond the material reduction, which is a continuous challenge. Yeah, please. And I think for him, God is culture. <laughs> if I were to put it this way, I'm not trying to say that he has no God, not in a sense, yeah. that, but rather the the one that you find meaning in is culture. So. Yeah. Uh, the life of the spirit is that which allows uh, to avoid the falling into yeah. the absurd. I would uh, pay $500 to find out what Noika would believe about American academia today, uh, what he would uh, think of uh, a lot of art and culture that occurs in uh, and which seems to be very frivolous and not very conducive to cultivation. So I think he has a very idealistic view of culture indeed. Of course, yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, maybe he didn't take the fact that human beings are fallen too seriously. So he's a deep Platonician follower of Plato, not probably... Uh, follower of Epicurus or of or Paul the Apostle. So he remains... No. Correct. He's much more a Platonist, if I were to put it this way. Actually, by the way, this is a funny uh, a funny thing, to, funny to me at least. Uh, I think he's the one who said that on his tomb, he wants to be written, here lies somebody who did not love Aristotle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> to me, that's actually funny. <laughs> can you uh, mention, before we close his project the project 22 let's call it oh uh, yes and it was a very interesting project that would really give us a, a glimpse about what he wanted to do and how seriously he, mm-hmm. he wanted to create this if you want uh, empire of culture to undermine or to vanquish the empire of the absurd Right, yeah. and that passage where he says, I, I think I'll find it, or you can find it, where he, I sang a song, and now I'm that beautiful uh, passage where he compares his life to a song. Well, yeah, and sometimes compares his life to an idea also, I think. So I, I don't know if I will find the passage, but I will talk about the 22. So uh, Romania had 22 million people. I think we have nowadays around 22 million as well. I don't know exactly, to be honest. But at that time, there were 22 million people. And his idea of the 22 was that in a country of way 22 million people, there must be one in a million who can become excellent in culture. And he believed that a country uh, who spends money into... into um, building uh, people who are engaged in sports or in arts or who are actors and so on, that a a country also has the duty to invest into those people who are potential um, performers of high culture. And even if, uh, you know, some people may uh, fail and so on, you still have to assume the risk of, let's say, giving to those 22 that you choose 
all the possible means of life. So uh, you give them uh, infinite credit, if I can put it this way, uh, and allow them, which obviously seems to be against the idea of well-being, you know, because they could be in the danger of, of being so well off that they no longer do culture. But in any case, to, to, to sustain them as much as possible so that you produce culture. And um, there is actually an essay the 22 that he write that he uh, that he actually reads there is a on youtube i think you can find it he reads it in romanian when he talks about the 22 and it's a beautiful essay who talks about the possibility of someone uh becoming the best version of himself or herself but he actually went and approached authorities about this right that's correct and that's one of the reasons people have accused him of collaborating with the authorities because he approached authorities and and um, told them of the uh, asked them to actually do some things like that and you you see in the book too in prison that he asked the authority to give him pencil and uh and paper because he found some sort of theory of communicating with the possible uh, civilizations from outside the uh, from outside the earth and he seems to be completely serious about that and obviously everybody laughs at him or doesn't really take him seriously even if they give him paper there's another point actually in the in the book i remember now where he asked to read marx and he reads marx in prison and and he enjoys reading Marx. And this takes place in a, in a country in which the only philosophy that can be done was Marxist philosophy. Uh, so even, you, you know, uh, not an, I want to say a normal human being, any human being, when you are forced to only read Marx, you would resent it and you will not enjoy it from the beginning. Noika is in prison, uh, placed in prison by a regime uh, who... Um, presents itself as having the origin in Marx, a regime who who em- imposes only Marx as the only ide- ideology that can be read or the only philosophy that can be read, and nevertheless he has the ability to find joy in reading Marx. I think that says a lot about Noika. And at the end of that, after discussing a serious discussion of he, Marx's ideas, he says, then someone will come to say, forgive him, he also lived under the folly of the good. Pray for the soul of brother Carl. Pray for the big brother. Yes. Incredible. I think that's a good, yes. So let us pray for all the brothers, Alexander. <laughs> so he, uh, Marx was also a brother, Alexander. Uh, he was, for, yeah. I mean, yeah. For him. Um, we let me read something before we go i think it was in your you you wrote a beautiful uh, encyclopedia entry uh noika and plato um noika's becoming within being and menos paradox uh, and the very last paragraph there i think is a, is an appropriate and uh, Noika was such a man who, turning towards the Greeks, lived his life as teacher and a scholar, as a true testimony to philosophy. Love for wisdom. In one of his notes he said, I sang my song, I am waiting now for a super song, but I do not know the ways to obtain it. Just as in Mino's paradox, this waiting for a super song seems to be the search for that 
which we do not know. However, Noika would not have looked for it if he had not already found it. Um, so, are you doing any other translations? Are you planning any future translations? Currently, no. <laughs> no, I think I have uh, I have uh, done sufficiently. I'm not saying no to translations. Yeah. Do not say me wrongly. But uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, I take translations. Uh, translations happen to me. I don't necessarily pursue them. Uh, most of the time, they have been ideas of other people, including actually uh, the Romanian sentiment of being, not uh, pray for Brother Alexander, but the Romanian sentiment of being, a friend of mine uh, had the idea first, and then Elena and I translated it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I should mention, we the most recent translation you did is a book by Valerio Gafenko, White Lilies. Uh, and that's the most recent, right? That's correct. And even that one started us uh, having fun. Um, White Lilies are poems written in prison by Gafenko. And uh, I started translating the poems he wrote. Um, I mean, it sounds bad because they are, you know, poems written in prison, but I started translating them for fun. It's like mathematics. Translating poetry for me is like mathematics, you know, put together certain things. Maybe not the best approach, but that's how I do it. And um, a very touching book, actually. And, uh, and a book, I think, that reminds us that we should... Uh, um, not judge people according to one or two aspects of their life, but allow ourselves to su- to be surprised by them, and to remember that, uh, um, just like Solzhenitsyn says, the line between good and be- evil does is not between people, parties, or countries, but it crosses every human heart. Uh, thank you very much, Doctor Gabor. For your time thank you very much and uh, maybe thank we'll you. do another discussion for uh, about this uh, most recent translation it would be my pleasure thank you very much